Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, we have been sort of going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And right now we're chapter 5. I want to basically begin this morning by giving you guys a quote from an author I love. A guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer. I'm going to read it to you. And then we will pray. And then we will read the passage in Matthew. And then we'll talk about it. Talk about it. And then we'll do some other things towards the end. So. Here's what Francis Schaeffer says. This is out of a book that he wrote called The Mark of a Christian or The Mark of the Christian. It's one of the best work, books, books, books I've ever read. Um, I've read it several times. I would encourage you, if you're looking to be challenged and changed, go to Amazon.com, uh, eBay. You can always find used books. You can get it for really cheap. It's an amazing book. It's really short. It's pretty easy to read. In fact, in some uh, they were they, they're so short that they actually wanted to sort of make it as like a prologue to another book, but they thought the content of it was so good they just made it a whole book in and of itself. But here's what Francis Schaeffer says at the beginning. Christians have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. Too often they have failed to show the beauty of love, the beauty of Christ, and the holiness of God. And the world is turned away. Is there then no way to make the world look again? This time at true Christianity. Must Christians continue to stand with arms folded, going on in their old sweet ways, presenting to men a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ? Um, this is taken from, as I mentioned, the book, uh, The Mark of the Christian. And his whole point in basically stating this, and his whole point of the book is to say that the mark of the true Christian is love. It's love. It's this indiscriminate love that flows from God through the conduit of a believer on into a world that, that challenges and changes the way the world typically or traditionally or by default mode operates. That's what Jesus is going to talk about today. Love. How to love. It's challenging. It's a big topic. It's huge. And Jesus throws out some very powerful and profound ways by which we can begin to address this larger concept of love in our lives and how it sort of flows out from us into the world so that the world can see an untarnished picture of what God's really like. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we just confess that we need your help. We do not possess a love in us that has the ability to just transform this world. We don't. But you do. And God, we recognize that we need you. We need your strength. We need not just simply a model of this, we need not just simply a picture of it, but we need the power to be able to live it out. So we ask you right now, Father, that your word, as it would go forth, it would change us, it would challenge our thinking, it would challenge our presuppositions, it would challenge us to the core of who we are and what we think love really is. God, that we would be changed and be conformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of the living God. So help us, we pray, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 43, I'm going to pick it up from right here, I'm going to read this to you guys, and then uh, we'll begin to talk about it. It says this, Matthew 5, verse 43, it says, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun shine upon evil as well as on good. And he sends the rain to the just and to the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more, do you, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So again, Jesus is really addressing this larger topic, this larger issue of love. The Sermon on the Mount is basically a series, it's one big sermon, but it's a series of sort of small vignettes that address various aspects of life, ranging from oaths, you know, how strong, how firm is your actual word, you know, when you say something, do you really mean it, or are you just acting like you mean it, and therefore, because nobody actually takes you at your word, you have to walk around and always tell people, I swear to you I'm telling you the truth. Jesus' whole, you know, sort of fix, fixing of that problem is just to say, Stop being deceptive. Just tell the truth. I mean, just be honest all the time. And you won't have to feel like you have to go around to always convince everybody. And he kind of goes through all sorts of little vignettes. He talks about marriage, lusting. In this particular setting, he's beginning to talk about love and trying to challenge our understanding of what love is. So here's what he does. He's been doing this uh, in the past few verses. It's this series that most scholars have called sort of the antithesis within the Sermon on the Mount, meaning Jesus will say something like this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So some scholars believe, I think falsely, that Jesus is challenging the Torah. He's challenging Moses. I don't think Jesus is challenging Moses, simply due to the fact that Jesus wrote the law of Moses. I don't think he's challenging his own words. But I think what he is challenging are sort of the false ideas that have kind of evolved out of the teachings of Moses. In other words, what was being taught was not what was consistent with what was originally written, okay? And I think a lot of us would probably, it's safe to say, uh, ideas that we have about God, even though they might be our ideas, even though those ideas might be profound, ideas, by the way, affect us, we, we act and we treat people and we uh, do things based upon ideas that we possess, so if you've got a false idea about God, that could cause you to do really bad things. Um, so you get the idea. So Jesus is challenging false ideas that have sort of evolved from the Mosaic writings about God. In this particular setting, he says, you've heard it said. This is what you've heard taught to you. But I want to tell you that there's a different way. This is not what was meant by God in the original stating. Statement. So his point is this. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and that you shall hate your enemy. So somehow the presupposition was this. That the way that we live is we love our neighbor. But our enemies, we hate. We have this ability or this right or this entitlement to not like them or to not care for them or to not tend to their needs. So here's the question. So Jesus' whole point is that this is, this is false. This is wrong. The way that you're thinking is incorrect. So what he's doing is he's challenging them at the very core of their ideas. And ultimately by challenging their ideas, he's going to begin to now have sort of a, a soft piece of clay, hopefully, that he can begin to reshape the outcome and the effect of what it will end up looking like. So here's what I'm, my, my point that I'm trying to make. He says, in essence, this is what you've heard. But I want to change the way that you think about this. All right? So here's the question. How did the Jewish people in the first century sort of come to think that it's okay or that it was God's idea or God's intention to actually just be okay to love your neighbor but hate everybody else? Okay, so this is what's going on. It's sort of this elitism or this exclusivism, this mentality of we are, the Jews kind of would say, the chosen people of God 
and everybody else outside of us are not chosen people of God, and therefore we have the right, we have the ability, we have the entitlement to mistreat them or to treat them as sort of subhuman or to act towards them in ways that are unlike the way that we ought to act towards those that are part of our family. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what was going on. It's this sort of elitism. Um, someone kind of even term it this way. It's kind of like a tribalism. Um, tribalism is sort of this mentality of you just look out after people or for people that are in your own immediate tribe. We see this sort of fragmentation, this sectarianism, all throughout humanity. You know, you even see it in churches. I'll give you an example. One of which I particularly despise. And I've seen it a lot, and it's troubling to me. I'll even just attack my own little movement that I've been a part of. Calvary chapels. Is this mentality of, we're Calvary chapels. We do it right. We teach the Bible. Nobody else does. They're wrong. It's sort of this tribalism. We feel an entitlement, or others might feel that entitlement to just say, because we do this or that, or this particular type of thing in this particular way, we now have the right to put other people down. We now have the right to think little of or find excuses of which to mistreat other people who don't do it this way. What I'm trying to say is it's this sort of elitism or tribalism that Jesus is addressing here. Okay, does that make sense? We do it in high school, all right? Go back to the high school days, all right? Depending upon what era you were from, I'll give you my era. We had surfers, all right? And then we had bodyboarders. They're not the same. I don't care if they both put on wetsuits. I don't care if they both go into the surf. They're not the same. Everybody knows surfers are better. The point that I'm trying to make is this, is that you have sort of this fragmentation. You got jocks, right? You got cheerleaders. They all kind of hang out. Jocks, cheerleaders connect. Well, surfers connect with skaters, all right? And they sort of shun bodyboarders. And they definitely did not like jocks. It was sort of this tribalism, all right? We see it all over our world. And here's what Jesus is saying. To his people, in essence, you're my chosen people, but you're acting with an elitism that I hate, I do not like, and you're living with a mentality that says we can love our neighbors, but hate everybody else. So here's a quote that I want to show you that was taken from um, a region of people uh, out in the Dead Sea. Um, a lot of scholars don't really know exactly who these people were. Some think they were the Essenes. Nobody really knows for sure. But it was a, it was a community of people that lived out in the Dead Sea uh, in the region called Qumran. It was where they located a really important document called the Dead Sea Scrolls. But within the Dead Sea Scrolls were all sorts of other documents and writings. Um, so here's one of the um, statements that they had found sort of within this community of people uh, taken out of one of the scrolls. It says this, that they may love all the sons of light and hate the sons of darkness. So somehow there is sort of this vibe or this mentality within this community of people living out in Qumran, which was uh, kind of equivalent to living out in sort of, I, I, I don't know, um, Shandon? I am saying it's just like way out in the place where it's really hot, place where normally you just don't want to go. It's just really hot out there, and they kind of had these caves where they lived in, and, and, and they just sort of separated themselves from the rest of the world to live out what they felt was the word of God. But they developed sort of this mentality that says we love all of the sons of light and we hate all of the sons of darkness. So here's a question. Who's the sons of light? 
who's the sons of darkness? Well, it's easy to answer if you're in that community. Sons of light are others in your community. Who's the sons of darkness? Well, if you live in Jerusalem, probably son of darkness. If you live in Galilee, eh, probably son of darkness. If you work for uh, Caesar, eh, probably son of darkness. If you have a job working for the temple, son of darkness. You see what I'm saying? It's this tribal mentality that somehow sort of permeated and gave them the feeling of justification to mistreat people without love. Okay? So, I want to give you guys a few verses that sort of run through the Old Testament, um, trying to uncover maybe how this was sort of uh, um, unwrapped from the Bible. Because obviously these guys would say, we are just living out the Bible. So here's some verses. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. God says, do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right, in the context of that verse, uh, who are the neighbors? Who is the neighbor of the person to whom God's speaking? Anybody? I'll do a multiple choice for you. Three. One. The neighbor is Jews. Uh, B. Neighbors are Gentiles. Or C. None of the above. Say. Right? Hello? Well, here. <laughs> okay. Anyways. A. It's the Jews. That, that's the idea. Because um, he says... The sons of your own people. He says, don't take vengeance on the sons of your own people. This is the sons of Jacob, um, Israel, people of Israel. Don't take vengeance upon your own people. He says, but rather, uh, love your neighbor. So in the context of this passage, the neighbor refers specifically to fellow Jews. Okay, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 says, No Amorite, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. So here in this particular verse, God says uh, you're to put a big old deadbolt on the door for entrance into the Jews and the Judaism of that day and say, no, you're not allowed in. To anyone who's a Moabite, to anyone who's a Mo or, or an Amorite. And the reason why God says, because when you guys are walking through the wilderness, they would not let you come into their land. So therefore, nobody up until the 10th generation may enter into the assembly. All right? So that's the point that God is basically trying to make. So it would be easy from this particular verse to sort of now feel like you have a liberty to say, good, now I can be mean to everybody who's a Moabite. I can treat poorly everyone who's an Amorite. Does that make sense? You can see how this sort of evolves. Right? You, you put a verse like this into the hands of somebody who's a human being. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, trying to really walk with God. We always have the ability to pervert something. So here's what was happening. They had this mentality where we can basically mistreat people. But again, question i got to ask, was this the heart of God? Was it really God's intention, God's heart, to completely put a door to the gates of heaven and say, no Moabite, no Amorite will ever be allowed to enter into my presence. None of them. No, that's not God's heart at all. In fact, quite to the contrary. I mean, God continued, even though the Moabites and the Amorites uh, had sort of this uh, blockade against them. Even still, God caused it to rain upon them. Sun still shone upon them and their crops, and their crops bore fruit up until the 10th generation. And God even still intervened and saved them. Here's an example. If you read in the book of Matthew, the very first chapter, you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ. In the lineage of Jesus Christ, there's a girl by the name of Ruth. Right? You've maybe read the book of Ruth. 
Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Moabitess. She was a part of this sort of condemned tribe. How did she make it in? Grace. It's grace. Same way you made it in. So if I made it in by grace, if she made it in by grace, then who am I to boast? Who am I to look down upon anybody else? Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Now we're getting somewhere, right? If we begin to look at it that way, it's by grace God plucked us from the fire and said, you're mine. We have no right to have this tribalistic mentality that says we're better than they. Does that make sense? That's why Jesus is going to challenge this and say, I'm going to challenge your tribalism. I'm going to challenge your mentality that tends to be very um, you indiscri- or discriminate. You are discriminating against certain people that don't fit into your picture of what righteousness should look like. Or fit in your picture of what your tribe should look like or your group of people should look like. This is intense stuff, guys. And that's what Jesus continues to do. All right, take a look at a couple of these next verses. Um, Next one. Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one that hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with you. You shall rescue it with him. So, what is God's attitude or how does God want uh, the Jewish people to treat. Let's say the enemy in this particular setting is another Jew. All right, he's your next door neighbor. He lives, you know, acre away. He's your enemy, though. You guys don't get along. You don't like each other. But let's say one day you're out picking berries on your property, and all of a sudden you see his donkey walking, and it falls down. I mean, the donkey falls down underneath a weight of massive proportion, and you're like, "Good, I'm gonna go kick that thing. He's my enemy's donkey." God says, no, help little donkey up and help send him back to master, all right? Treat the donkey nice because he belongs to your enemy and even though he's your enemy, I still love him. You get it? I still love him. Last one, Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In the context, who's the enemy? A little bit vague, we don't know. Could be a Jew, could be a Gentile. I think, to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter. It's basically saying, who's your enemy? Anybody. Whoever's your enemy. Give him something to drink. And uh, if he's thirsty, give him, give him something to eat, give him something to drink. It's a way of bringing blessing to him. To live a different way. Remember, Jesus has been talking about retaliation. We looked at this last week. In this larger context in which the way that we live, the way that we are human in a broken sense, we are broken humanity. Broken humanity operates in a way whereby we act out of retaliation, right? You hurt me, I hurt you back. And God's way of addressing retaliation, because the reality is, when we retaliate, do we ever retaliate proportionately? Proportionally, do we ever retaliate that way? Have you ever seen anybody retaliate proportionally? In other words, if somebody hurts you, or like, you know, let's say they slap you on the wrist. Do you, have you ever seen somebody just go back and slap them with the exact same pressure? No, it's like always worse. So how did God try to bring a solution to that? Here's what he said. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It was, it was, it was a means of setting up a parameter saying, look, if some dude plucks your eye out, don't go kill his entire family, which is what you want to do. You, you only get an eye. 
all right? Someone knocks out your tooth and you look like a hillbilly, don't, don't, get, don't get mad and go, you know, raid his entire group of people and put salt in his field so that he can't grow anything else. Just, all you get is another tooth. That's it. There, there, there's a limit to how far this should go. But Jesus is going a step further here now, isn't he? He's saying, retaliation, be careful with retaliation. But there's a better way to live. There's a better way to even beyond just simply being creative in your retaliation. He says there's a way that breaks the cycle even more profoundly. It's love. Because you've heard it said before, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I'm going to say to you something that will change and challenge you to the very core. He's going to say, I want you to, uh, as he goes on in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus is going to take it a step further and say, this is how I want you to operate. This is how really things change. This is how things become different. Not by continuing to get sort of in this uh, circulating vortex of constant destruction. That's the world we live in, right? You know, somebody does something to me, I do something back to them. But it's usually always uh, disproportionate. It's more so than what they did to me. So Jesus says, somebody's got to break the cycle. And the only way that the cycle typically gets broken in this world is if you get somebody who's very, very powerful, who has got a lot of strength, a lot of ability, a lot of ammunition at his hands, and he can actually put a stop to it by intense pressure, like a tyrant. But he says that there's another way to stop this. By people, rather than retaliating out, of, retaliating out of hatred, but change the way that they operate. And they love. That's a different way to operate. That's where he's trying to go with this entire thing. So what he's going to begin to say now, is I want to finish with this little section here of uh, the first one in verse 43. And kind of ask the question, who are our neighbors? Like who exactly are our neighbors? Because Jesus says... You've heard it said, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Um, the, the, the Bible actually addresses this question and tries to help us understand who our neighbor is. So I want to read you a little passage out of Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 29, where Jesus is approached and he's actually asked by a particular guy and he says, hey, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus replies, and as Jesus oftentimes does, as he tells sort of a story. And in this particular story, he basically unpackages for him this amazing little tale of uh, one guy who's beaten up and then three other people who um, are basically have the opportunity to do something about it. Two don't, one does. So here's the story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. That was a dangerous road in that particular day. And they stripped him and they beat him and they, and they uh, departed, leaving him half dead. So here's this guy, uh, man number one on the scene. He gets destroyed, everything's stolen from him, he's left half dead, he's bloody, he's on the side of the road, he looks horrible. Um, Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus says a priest. Now who's a priest? Well, a priest back in that day was probably one of the most important uh, religious figures of the day. He was a guy that probably would have been equivalent to like a pastor, or an elder, or a leader of the church. And so what he was basically saying is this particular priest saw the guy lying on the side of the road, bloody, destroyed. Rather than stopping, which is where Jesus was going to try to go with all this, and to help him, he actually walks on the other side of the road. Because he doesn't want to get, you know, dirty. He doesn't want to become unclean. He just feels, because oftentimes in early first century mentality, that if somebody has some sort of pain inflicted upon them, or some sort of evil befalls them, the mentality was, 
The mentality was something like, they probably did something to deserve it. And I don't want to interfere with that. I don't want to interfere with that. So I'll just, I'll, 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 I'll go on the other side of the road and just mind my own business. Second guy, Jesus goes on to say in this next little slide, says this. Oh, likewise, sorry, it was there. <laughs> my dad. Uh, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So a, a Levite this time. Uh, first a priest, now a Levite. Levite probably would have been equivalent to like a, a leader in the church. Um, he would have been something along the lines of somebody who is recognized. He's identified as a leader within the church, within the movement. Um, and he basically does the exact same thing that the priest does. And then Jesus goes on in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came by to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I, I want you to think about this for a minute here because you've got to catch the cultural uh, weightiness of this. Samaritans in first century were viewed with such great uh, dislike and despite by people within first century. All Jews really hated Samaritans. And this is sort of in short how they viewed a Samaritan person. They looked at a Samaritan and thought, not only is the guy a heretic, uh, Samaritans had really weird theology. They totally believed in a God that was not derived from the Old Testament. All right? In fact, they only had the first five books of Moses. The rest of the Old Testament they completely denied. Um, so their theology was just whack, okay? Everything they believed about God was just twisted. And Jesus even says so in the early portion of John, right? So theologically, these guys were so messed up, all right? But secondly, these guys were viewed as sort of half-breeds. Um, they, they were never really viewed as sons of Abraham. Even though they were half-Jews, they were also half-Gentile, meaning they... Uh, became kind of a new breed or a race of people when the Assyrians came down and attacked them. The Syrian people had, you know, commingled with the Jewish people. And so they were viewed with sort of a double hatred. Not only were religiously, theologically they were messed up, but also they were viewed just as sort of half-breeds. Nobody really liked them. So here's, here's where it goes on, verse 34. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. So it goes on, I think the very next section, it says in verse 35, And the next day he took, him, took out two denarii, and he gave it to them, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, and when I come back, which of these, and then Jesus asked, verse uh, 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the man who fell among the robbers. And then, Jesus, and then he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So the question is, who really is the neighbor? Who really is acting as a neighbor? Showing love, showing kindness. So check this out. Just so you get the weight of this. Who's the hero of the story? Samaritan. Um, if, if this was sort of a modern day parable, or if this was in today's culture, um, being spoken to the church, being spoken to religious people, it would almost be uh, like Jesus if he were to sort of modernize this. The hero of the story could have been Bin Laden, maybe a homosexual, maybe somebody that we would particularly look at and say they're theologically messed up, and secondly, their lifestyle is completely uh, one that I can't endorse. And Jesus says, just to prove my point, the one that's going to be the hero of the story is the one that you despise the most. And Jesus says, go and live a neighborly life. Because he answered correctly. 
who's my neighbor? See, here's the deal. We in the Christian church have this tendency to really try to just try to find ways around loving people, don't we? Um, back in the 90s, when the AIDS virus came out, and it's funny, a lot of churches today are now really getting involved and sort of helping out uh, as relief um, AIDS victims. Um, Africa is huge right now with the AIDS virus. Uh, the majority of the people that are, are infected by it and are dying are women and children. They're the ones that are the most infe- uh, affected by this whole entire uh, epidemic. And what's taking place over the past you know, 10 years or so is that Christians are now starting to get involved in it, maybe the past five years or so. But prior to that, in the late 90s, Christians' response, for the most part, I remember I was there, I was a Christian then. For the most part, the major response from the Christian community towards those who had AIDS was they deserve it. They're a bunch of homosexual people. They deserve it. This is a judgment from God. They deserve this. This is how they lived. They brought it on themselves. They deserve it. And the thought of actually helping somebody who was dying of AIDS, even though morally they were pretty messed up, maybe living a homosexual lifestyle or living some sort of lifestyle that was completely uh, condemned maybe by the Bible or whatever, we, we just wouldn't think about it. Let me give you another illustration. What if you're walking on the street and all of a sudden some guy behind you crashes into a pole, you hear this massive crash, you know, screeching to a hole, and you hear a big massive crash, and all of a sudden the guy just comes, you know, unbuckled out of his seat and flying out of the door, and he's rolling on the ground, and he comes up and he's like right there next to you. And the car's destroyed, the guy's all bloody, his arm's like all broken and stuff, and compound fractures, and his face is all mangled, and, and you smell alcohol, like, like a bottle of Jim Bean just like is, is still in his hand. And he's just like holding on to it. He's like, what's up? <laughs> you know? How many of us would actually look at that guy and be like, what an idiot. This guy deserves this. And keep walking. I think what Jesus is trying to say is that our enemy is somebody, oftentimes going to be somebody we don't agree with. We don't necessarily like. We don't endorse their lifestyle. We might even feel very uncomfortable around them. But there's a way to live that demonstrates and reflects something of the character, something of the nature, something of the love of God, something that challenges us to the core, to challenge the way that we think, to challenge the way that we act, to challenge the way that we react to people just simply because they're people made in the image of God. And have dignity, value, and respect, period. I think that's what Jesus is saying. His whole challenge, as you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I'm saying to you, love your enemy. Some of your translations might say, bless those who curse you. And then he finishes with this little section here. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to finish up here and wrap it up. Here's what Jesus goes on to say, really throws down three things to do. One, to love your enemies. Uh, agapeo is the Greek word that's actually used here. It's a word of like devoting yourself to loving somebody who may be your enemy, who may be perceived as your enemy. Who's your enemy? Uh, I think it's an easy one to figure out, right? Uh, really, oftentimes, if we just are honest with ourselves, oftentimes the enemy is anybody who does not agree with me, right? Or anybody who would challenge myself or my lifestyle or my thinking or my worldview that's my enemy 
Some of us, our enemy might be the one who gets us out of bed in the morning, all right? Um, some of us, our enemy might be our spouse. I hope not, but, you know, it's our, it's, our enemy can be anybody, all right? Um, and he goes on, and he says, bless those who curse you. Some of your translations have that passage there, bless those that curse you. This, by the way, is sort of a, um, a manuscript discrepancy. Some of the older translations have this, like King James, New King James. Uh, some of the new translations don't add the bless those that curse you. Um, it doesn't really change the tone of the text, um, but I think it is definitely a passage there that definitely is supported and endorsed by other passages of Scripture to bless your enemies. So what does that look like? How do you bless your enemies? Really the idea of blessing is to come alongside and to just to bring blessing, to shower blessing, to shower kindness in a lot of ways is what the concept of blessing meant upon those that uh, curse you. The third thing that Jesus says is to pray for those that persecute you. This is a tough one persecute you. Pray for those that persecute you. The word persecute, the word persecute is kind of an intense word. All right? Dioko is the actual uh, Greek word. Dioko. D-I-O-K-O. Dioko. I'm going to give you a couple of the uh, descriptive words that sort of go along with the definition of this. Listen to them. Uh, To pursue. To follow with haste. To persecute. To oppress. Harass. um, To strive. All of these are words that sort of kind of fill in the definition of dioko. Um, we might even sort of in today's terminology say nag. Like nag. He's constantly nagging me. Pursuing me. Pressuring me. Pushing at me. Pushing my button. He's, he's like a thorn. I don't know why I'm always putting in the masculine. Maybe more men are problematic than women. Right? Maybe she. She is like a thorn in my side. Those are the concepts. The, the, the picture of thorn in my side is great because think about something or it's short, a thorn in your shoe. Think about something that's in your shoe. You're on a hike and every footstep you take, you feel this, this sensation of pain. You're like, ah, I hate that. That might be the description that some people have in your life. Anybody like that? Now I know this is probably not practical in any bit in any of your lives today, but supposing if it was, just supposing you had people that constantly nagged you, constantly bothered you, or were even prone to pressure you. Writing emails, that's the person that's just like, now what did you mean when you said this? Like, nothing. Then why did you say it? I was half asleep? Like, what did you mean by that? Nothing? Like, you know, just constantly, every angle, looking for a way to just, and you just finally get tired of it. So Jesus says, those people that pressure you, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for those that persecute you or pressure you. The last thing that I want to take a look at here is really what is the source in which Jesus is trying to point to in terms of this example of love? What's the source? Where is, he, where is he trying to look at? What's he trying to really bring up and say, this is the picture. This is, this is the image of what I'm trying to show you so that you can see it and be impacted by it and be someone that can impact others through it. So Jesus says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes the sun to rise upon the evil as well as upon the good, and he sends rain upon the just and the unjust. So here's what Jesus is saying, is that when you act like this, when you uh, pray for those that pressure you, when you curse the, or bless those that curse you, when you love those that are your enemies, Jesus basically is saying is what you're really doing is you're acting a lot like your Father who's in heaven. You're acting like him. You look like him. You're giving a demonstration of the fact, kind of like father, like son, or like daughter, like father. That's what you're beginning to look like. Something uh, of the world will begin to take notice because the way that you're acting is radically different than the typical default mode of retribution. Okay? So here's what he says. God causes it to rain upon good people and bad people. And he causes the sun to shine upon good people and bad people. Um, This is what scholars oftentimes call common grace. All right, common grace, meaning that God has a universal love. All right, Um, this universal love of God is towards everybody. Towards Muslims, towards our enemies, towards people we hate. Every morning, Bin Laden wakes up, the sun's shining on him. Every once in a while, even it rains. All right, what I'm trying to say is this indiscriminate love, universal love of God that is upon and over everybody. I, I want to make a distinction, though, that scholars go further, which I agree with, a distinction between common grace and saving grace, meaning that common grace does not save you. All it does at the end of the day is it shows you that God is a God of incredible love. That's what common grace does. So one day, everybody will stand before God, and they'll say maybe something like this, God, you did nothing for me. God will say, I did a lot for you. I always cause it to sunshine on you and rain. I give you a heart, a beat, give you a mind. I give you really good looks, and your looks took you places. You got a lot of money off of those looks. I gave you abilities to play guitar, and you played. You became a rock star, and everybody looked at you and worshipped you, and you died. And you never pointed people to me. I gave you lots of money. I was very good to you. But saving grace is that grace that comes in which God opens our eyes and we see Jesus. We trust him and we're saved. The common grace is universal. Saving grace is not universal, meaning not everybody will be saved. But everybody, indiscriminately, throughout the whole world, will be shown the love of God. And that's the type of love that Jesus says, here's how I want you to live. To live in a way whereby you indiscriminately love all people. You show them the love of God. And as you do this, you're going to look a lot like the Father who's in heaven. Then he finishes this little section here. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So his point, I think, here is this. Is that if you just love people, I mean the tax collectors. I mean, they, they, of course... They love people because they're always giving them money. I mean, who's, what's not to love about that, you know? I mean, can you imagine that if you had somebody that was always just giving you cash, and you're like, dude, I love you. I love you. You're awesome, all right? Jesus is like, that's a joke, right? I think people are probably laughing at that particular moment, right? But his whole point is like, everybody loves somebody who gives them something. But what about somebody who loves somebody who never gets any love in return? Now that, that causes people to stand back and be in amazement. Now what about somebody who actually loves somebody, not only just 
gets nothing in return, but in return maybe gets crucified. And they still love. Now that's love. To stand in awe. That's where Jesus is going with all this. The last verse that we look at here, and we wrap it up, is this. Jesus in verse 48 says, Now therefore, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now some scholars trying to help people out, you know, sometimes scholars are good. Sometimes scholars, I think, can sort of make things a little bit more difficult. Some scholars have actually taken this verse and like, to, to try to soften it a little bit, because it seems really intense. I mean, when you read a verse and it's like, now be perfect, just like God. You're like, that, that's pretty hard. I mean, like, I can barely be nice to my family before I drink my cup of coffee. I mean, I don't know how to be perfect as God's perfect. Some scholars, to try to soften it up a little bit, they're like, well, perfect doesn't really mean perfect. Perfect actually means complete. Now, that really helps things out, right? Be complete, just like God is complete. Well, now that's easier, right? No, here's what I think is happening. Jesus is basically saying, I want you to live in such a way whereby your life is positioned in a way to reflect something of the nature and the character of God. Here's what's happening here. You know, again, we can ask the question, is all of this possible? I mean, in one sense, no, it's not possible. But again, what we have to realize, the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, all of this is not just simply good advice. Jesus is not just going around saying pithy statements just so that people can write them down and think, now that's a great piece of advice. Jesus' statements are not just simply to be taken as good advice. They are to be taken as good news or as gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is not so much about us as it is about Really, if you want to look at it this way, it's a blueprint for Jesus himself. Everything that Jesus calls his disciples to live out and to do and to reflect in the Sermon on the Mount, he himself is in process of doing. I mean, he's already done it today, but to his disciples, he was in the process of living it all out. Jesus never calls his disciples to something that he himself is not already going to do. And that's what his whole point is. Is that the Sermon on the Mount is really this blueprint of what Jesus did. The point is is to drive us back, to draw us back, to see how great Jesus is. And in looking to Jesus, we see something of the love of God, the grace of God reflected. Here's a couple examples. When Jesus was mocked, he didn't retaliate. He didn't retaliate. When Jesus was challenged, when people came to him and said, now how can you say this? How can you act like this? How can you sit down and have dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes? How can you act like this? Oftentimes, Jesus would respond with sort of quizzical, sometimes humorous riddles and stories causing people to think and react differently. When Jesus was struck, he took the pain. When Jesus was handed the apparatus of the Roman cross, Jesus carried it as far as he could all the way to the point of his execution. When Jesus' enemies got on their hands and knees and were about ready to drive the nails into his hands and into his feet, Jesus resigned himself and prayed for them. Guys, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is really to cause our attention and our eyes to look right back to Jesus and say, everything that Jesus teaches here is what he does. Impossible? On one hand, yes. But not in Christ, not through Jesus, 
That's what he calls us to do. Matthew is writing not so much just as a means of saying, here's a new list of morality for you to try on. He's not throwing out a bunch of new laws for us to get tangled up in and stumbled by. Really what Matthew's doing is he's saying, he's giving an invitation. He's saying, come join the work that God's doing in Christ so that you can reflect something of the character and the nature of God in this world. I want to say a little last thing about reflecting and being just sort of a light. You could be a light that ref- that's actually reflective light. Okay? The light that we exude is not intrinsic. It's not because there's something super unique and special about us. It's reflected. The whole point and purpose of a mirror is to just position itself in a way in which that light, the source, shines. And Jesus is saying, I am intrinsically light, and I'm calling you to join with me, to be with me, to walk in my life, to be filled with my life, so that as you position your life, that you would be different, you would live differently, rather than acting out of retaliation, you would act out of love. Rather than being somebody that's always telling lies, that you would just be honest and speak the truth. Rather than somebody that's always trying to go out and just uh, be angry, that your heart would think differently, that you would act differently, that you would be differently because of the life of God that's in you. For some of us, our response to God would be to just lay aside our sin, to repent is what the Bible says, to turn away from sin, our sinful actions, our sinful activities. Sin can be as, as horrible as whatever it is that you want to think of it as that we typically count as sin. But sin can also be as simple as just a mentality inside your heart that says, I refuse to forgive my parents. In which Jesus would say, That refusal is killing you. That refusal is destroying you. It's like the flames of Gehenna, which are constantly burning. It's burning you. It's consuming you. The words of Jesus would be to say, leave that. Come follow me. I'll give you life. And I will use you in a way to reflect this new life throughout this world. And in doing so, you'll be like a light and you'll be like salt, preserving. We're going to wrap it up. Now, I'm done. We're going to wrap it up, and we're going to respond in a couple of different ways. One, we're going to respond in a, in a few moments here with worship and singing and giving our tithes and our offerings. But right now, what I want to do is I want to respond by basically praying. All right, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those that pressure you. And, uh, you know, we can talk a lot about this and be great, but the bottom line is this, are we doing it? Are we doing it? Now, what I want to pray together about, I mean, some of you might be like, are we going to pray? Are we going to pray in church? Yeah, we're going to pray in church. I hope that's cool. Like, church could be, should be for prayer. And uh, I know sometimes we get in little routines, like we sing a few songs, we talk a little bit, and a guy gets up there and yells at you for a little bit, and like we go home. And, and we never really do anything. So w- what we're going to do today, a little bit differently, we're going to pr- actually pray. We're going to like break up into little groups. And I realize some of you might feel freaked out by this and you know I, 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 I hope you get over it you know because I love you but um, Jesus loves you too but we're going to break up in little groups about four but what we're going to do is we're going to pray but specifically what I want to pray about 
is that God would help us to pray for our enemies. Because we, we can sit here and pray for our enemies right now. That'd be weird. You're like in a little group. You're like, Jesus, pray for my husband. He's a real jerk. And just help him. You know, that gets a little bit freaky. So we're not going to do that. But what we're going to do is, because you should be praying for that on your own, in your own time. When you walk on a beach or and you're just sitting down with God, you should be praying for those things on your own time. But what I want to do is I want to pray that we would do that, that we would actually do that, that what happens from here, this point forward, that we would go out and be those people and pray like that and love indiscriminately people whom Jesus loves. I want to break up in groups and I want to pray like this. God, help me to love these people that are hurting me. Help me to just pray for these people that are constantly like a thorn in my flesh. That's what I want you to pray for. I want you to ask people next to you and say, can you just pray for me? I'm having a hard time doing this. Look, I'll be really straight up honest. All right, I've been doing this church I mentioned here 15 years. All right? After 15 years of time, you're bound to make enemies. All right? I've had a, made a lot of them. All right? People come through for whatever reason, don't like me anymore. I do the best that I can to try to make friends with everybody. But the bottom line is this. Sometimes those people still write emails, and they still comment on my blog, and they still nag, and they still do stuff. And it's hurtful to me. My challenge is what do I do? How do I respond? Get angry? Retaliate? Blog back? What do I do? And the real challenge for all of us as we live, as we live, is to say we need to live the way the gospel shines light upon our path to live. We need to live in such a way that says, I, I will not fight evil with evil. I will resist. And I will fight evil with good, as Paul says. I will bless my enemy. If he's hungry, I'll give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, buy him something to drink. I will bless. That is the revolution that Jesus is really trying to hit at. So let's do this. We're going to respond. All right? If you're not a Christian here, obviously don't pray. You, know, you, don't, you don't got to pray. I mean, you can have someone pray for you. It might be kind of weird about that. If you're here and you're like, ah, I just, I get clammy, that's fine. We're not going to like make you do something that you don't want to do. That's fine. You can just have someone pray for you. But let's take about four or five minutes. Let's break up into groups of no bigger than four, and let's just pray. That just simply boils down to you saying, pray for me. I want to be loving. I want to do what Jesus says. I don't want to just hear it. I don't want to just get more information. I don't want to just memorize the verse and be like, hey, guess what? I can quote this verse. I want to do this. I want to live this so that I would be the revolution that Christ calls us to be. So that we, as a community of people, can be known as a community of people who truly love one another and live that way.